I hope you've all had a good Thanksgiving week. I know I have. On Thanksgiving morning, I took my family to the Laguna Niguel Botanical Gardens. So not a big garden guy myself, but it was pretty cool. Yeah, some people have been there. So if you've been there, you know that it's this big area with lots of different paths. There's a stone step pathway that goes this direction and it crosses, a, you know, intersects with a bridge that goes that way and there's a dirt road and it's just kind of all these paths, more than you can cover in one visit and um, paths that, if you're not careful, can actually end up feeling like a maze. So <laughs> the park is big, it's expansive, it's really cool, but it's so big with so many different paths that it can function like a maze, especially when you appoint your children to take turns leading the family down whichever path they want, okay? So, um, they, which they loved this power just a little bit too much. I would say to the four-year-old, all right, you're in charge. Pick whichever path you want. We're just going to walk through, and if you want to go that way, we'll go that way. When we get to the next fork in the road, you pick which way we're going. We're all following. And then a few minutes later, next kid, all right, seven-year-old. Now you're picking the path, and you're leading the family, and so they go, and and then the nine-year-old, and then the 11-year-old, and so then we would cycle through. So if it didn't feel like a maze by itself, it certainly felt like a maze after the kids were leading because we would end up walking down a path saying, this looks strangely familiar. I feel like we've been here before. In fact, we have. We're, we're going in circles. Or a kid would intentionally take us in circles, and that would be really annoying to everybody else. And tears were shed. Uh, leadership lessons were learned. Um, <laughs> And I share that story to put that picture of a complex maze in your mind and then to pose the question, is that what life is supposed to be like? Is it supposed to be the case that we go through this life and there's a million different pathways to take and they intersect and they wind together and, and there's always decisions to make. Do we go this way? Do we go that way? And the reality is we live in a complex world. There's a lot of pathways it's a complicated maze of sorts, and we often find ourselves at a fork in the road or at a decision saying, what should we do here? What are we supposed to do here? And maybe you find yourself asking that kind of question more and more lately, and this maze of life is complicated, much more so than a peaceful garden, because there are voices at every step of the way telling you which path to take and why, and all the information on this one and that one, and this is complicated. So if you find yourself asking God for direction, then you're not alone. What should I do? What if I lose my job? What are we going to do then? What should we do about school for the kids? This is a difficult decision. Well, should we leave California? It's a question people keep asking. What's happening in our country? What should I do about it? How are we going to get by this month? And what, where are we going to come up with the money necessary to do what we need to do? And what should we do about this new dose of information? And I think while life in this world can be confusing and complex, there remain a few simple um, components of faithful living in the Christian life. There are a few components to living the way God wants you to live in the midst of a complicated world. And so like a map to help guide our way through the maze of life, 
I think we can find in the timeless Word of God a few clear, timeless principles to help navigate the way. So if you open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3, I want to look at a couple of those principles with you today. Proverbs chapter 3. Consider how to live right for God in a complex world. Starting in verse 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. We need this verse more than ever. And if you want to live right for God in a complex world, then the first principle we see here in this passage is to trust God. Choose to trust God. And that's point number one. If you want to write that down, choose to trust God. This is a choice that you need to make every day. And more than ever before, you're faced with the dilemma of figuring out who to trust. We live in a day and age when there is so much noise and information available at our fingertips. We're constantly needing to make the decision, who do I trust? Do I trust this source? Is this information reliable? I typed in um, into a Google search yesterday afternoon, COVID-19, and I got... 3.7 billion results in 1.17 seconds. (laughs) That's a lot of information at my fingertips. And you could do the same search right now on your phone if you wanted, right? There's no shortage of information available to us. In fact, never before in the history of mankind have we ever had so much information available at our fingertips. Yet, I'm convinced that this information is not making the Christian life easier to navigate. It's actually making it more complex for us to navigate. So, this is difficult. There's a high volume of information, and it's complicated by questioning credibility, motivations, accuracy of statements, because anyone can publish any information anytime now. So, you're faced with the question, that's more urgent than ever before, who do you trust? And our passage gives us a resounding, a clear and explicit answer to that question. You can take it to the bank and you need to. Trust God with all of your heart. Out of all the options, out of all the information, we've got some reliable information right here. We need to choose to trust the author of this book. Choose to trust God. He is trustworthy. He has never contradicted himself. He's never lied. He's never had bad motives. He's never explained things unclearly. (laughs) He never gives false information. But God is perfectly trustworthy. And he's also sovereign. He's in control of everything. He's all-powerful and... He's good, and you ought to trust him. He is trustworthy, the most trustworthy source in your life. 
And we could probably spend all day looking at very, various passages in the Bible that speak to the trustworthiness of God. There's a lot of passages here, a lot of uh, pieces of the Bible that uh, communicate how and why you ought to trust God. He is trustworthy. 1 John 1, 9, one such verse says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's trustworthy. He is faithful. He's just. He's promised to forgive on the merit of Christ. And He does. And I know He does because uh, we're all alive and breathing and he's, um, you, 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 you're here today. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 13, 5 Here's another promise. It says, um, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. John 16, Jesus speaking says, these things I have, um, I've said to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And he has. 1 Peter chapter, three, or chapter 1, verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded uh, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. There are a lot of passages that testify, that speak to the trustworthiness of God and the goodness of trusting in Him. We can go on all day asserting so. And I think then we can go on all day tomorrow and pass the microphone around the room and have each of you testify of God's trustworthiness in your life. In fact, we got to experience a little bit of that last week with the baptisms. We heard testimony after testimony of the trustworthiness of God as He shows His grace in the lives of people. God's trustworthy. We need to choose to trust Him. And the passage, it goes on to say, do not lean on your own understanding. Do not, so trust God, not your own understanding. Lean on God and His trustworthiness. Do not lean on your own comprehension of the situation. So I think what this verse is saying is you need to bank your confidence, bank your, your dependence on God, not your own comprehension of situation A or situation B or your own base of knowledge. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 26, it says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. And then there are, there's another proverb, it's actually repeated and this doesn't happen very often in the Proverbs, but when it does, we ought to pay attention to the, the proverb that's repeated, right? And Proverbs 14, 12 and 16, 25 both say this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. See, the, our, our passage says, do not lean on your own understanding. You might think you know better than God and if you were figuring things out, maybe your reality would look a little bit different than it looks now. You don't understand what's happening right now. Does it make sense to you? Don't lean on your understanding. Trust God. Now, what's funny here is that I am working really hard, constantly, as are many of you, 
to grow in my understanding of the Bible and what it means. I want to learn more and gain more knowledge about God and about the Bible and the significance of it and put all the pieces together. And maybe some of you, you know, you're reading your Bibles every day. You're taking classes at CBI. You're going to men's Bible study. You're you're trying to gain knowledge. I'm trying to gain knowledge in the Bible. And I don't think this verse here is condemning attaining knowledge. What it's condemning is banking your hope on that knowledge, banking your trust on that knowledge. It's good, actually, elsewhere in Scripture, it affirms it's, it's good for you to seek the Lord and understand the Bible and uh, grow in your understanding. You ought to be gaining more knowledge. But it should never be the case that the more knowledge we attain about the Bible and God, the less we depend on Him as a result. See, it becomes a problem when my knowledge takes God's place. The more I learn, the less I feel like I need him, the more I feel like I've got it figured out myself. That's what this passage is condemning. Don't don't lean on your own understanding. Grow in your understanding. Learn about the Bible. Uh, Learn about God. Gain Christian knowledge and let that knowledge fuel your dependence on God, not replace it. And we can joke about this verse, you know, um, do not lean on your own understanding. We can say, good, um, I feel I turn on the news and I don't understand anything that's going on. So, good, I'm not supposed to lean on my own understanding. That's fine. I don't get anything right now. This is all complicated and it's all confusing. I don't know what's true. But I think when we're honest, when we don't understand things, after a period of time, we can become anxious. Can we not? Isn't that when we become anxious, when we don't get it, we don't understand, we can't wrap our mind around it, it doesn't make sense to us, we can become anxious and we can worry. And I think there are a lot of us here today who come into the, the doors and sit down with a burden of anxiety on their shoulders. And anxiety, I'm convinced, is scalable in the sense that it will fit into the smallest available box you have. No matter how big or small your problems are, anxiety will fill that available space. For example, um, I hate to admit, but I've watched some of the show uh, Downton Abbey with my wife, Bethany. <laughs> and um, the, the things that they, they struggle over and they worry about, the anxiety that burdens them, it's like the, the pettiest thing stuff. If you know the show, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's about a rich family in England just before World War I, and uh, their, their job is to live a rich lifestyle and maintain an estate and get, you know, be rich. And that's, that's what they're supposed to do. And um, yet, they'll build a whole episode around this dilemma where one of their 10 butlers has left and now they're, they're like, oh, no, what are we going to do? We need to find the 10th butler. How are we going to survive for the next week? And it's just like all of this drama of how to survive without a 10th butler. Who's going to change me tomorrow morning? <laughs> but the thing is, um, I think anxiety is scalable. And so if that, you know, that were not a fictional story, that were real, I, I would say that's real anxiety that those people are facing, though we look at it and we laugh. It's like, 
I wish my problem was figuring out a 10th butler. I don't have one butler. I'd like one butler. That'd be great. Um, But for them, it was real anxiety, um, though seemingly petty to us because anxiety is scalable. And the irony is, you know, I sit here and get frustrated as I watch these shows as I sit on my couch in Orange County in the 21st century with a certain set of luxuries that other people might look at and say, I wish that guy's problems were my problems. See, I, I, I'm frustrated at the show because I'm like, I wish that was my problem. I've got real, real problems that I'm dealing with here. My problems are much harder than that. So this is annoying for me to watch. And I think other people could say the same thing about me. So anxiety doesn't discriminate. It doesn't only reserve itself for the big legitimate problems. It will go into any available space and uh, bring you down with all the available space you have. I think anxiety is also parasitic in the sense that it will latch on and it will stick with you wherever you go. So changing your circumstance will not fix your anxiety problem. If you've got anxiety, it will latch on to your heart. It's actually a heart issue. And moving from one room to another or one home to another or one state to another or one job to another, changing your circumstances in any way is not going to elude anxiety that's stuck like a parasite into your heart. It's going to go with you to that next state, to that next job, to that next situation, to the next room. You can't just fix your anxiety by changing your circumstances. You need to deal with your anxiety the way the text calls us to, and that is by trusting in God. It's a spiritual issue that needs to be resolved at a spiritual level. Don't just put a Band-Aid on it, but let's deal with it at the source. Trust God. And it's not just anxiety about government mandates that I'm referring to here. I think this passage, do not lean on your own understanding. I think it also applies to situations where you're saying, I just don't get, I just don't get it right now. God, why are you doing this in my life? What's going on right now? I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't get it. I don't like this. This is hard. This is difficult. Why are we going through this trial? What are you doing here? I don't have any answers. When you're in that situation, it's difficult because you don't understand, so you feel anxious. And the solution here is you don't, need to, you don't need to understand. And we wish that wasn't the case, right? We want to know. We want to know why it's all there. But the solution is not get to a place where you do figure it all out. The solution is whether you, whether you get answers and you, you arrive at an understanding or not, you don't de- depend on and lean on your own understanding, but you lean and depend on God. Trust God. And the passage says, do so with all of your heart. See that there? With all of your heart. Many of us likely trust God with a partial heart because that's the easy part. Trusting God with a partial heart is easy. 
you can trust God when you sit here at church and you look at a passage like this one and you think clearly and biblically about the situation. And when we sing worship songs that proclaim truths about God and you're in the company of a bunch of, uh, uh, and you're in the company of a bunch of other people who trust God, trusting God in this context is one thing. Trusting God in every other context of your life is more complicated and more difficult. And that's exactly where you need to bring the trust. It's not just here, not just occasionally, but with all of your heart. Only God has the bird's eye view. Only God is perfectly trustworthy. So we need to learn and relearn to choose to trust in Him. And that's the first principle for navigating life and living the way God wants us to live in a complex world. I said it was simple, but I never said it was easy. That's, that's a difficult thing, though it's simple to understand. And the second one is like it. Passage goes on to suggest we ought to follow God's rules in every facet of life. Look at verse 6. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. In all of your ways. And so let's put it this way for point number two. Obey God exhaustively. Obey God exhaustively. I love this verse. I love this verse. But I don't love the choice of the ESV translators to put in the word acknowledge here. And the reason is the sense of this word is probably not what you automatically think of when you hear the word acknowledge. We acknowledge stuff all the time without much thought, don't we? You might, you know, it's like my phone updates overnight, and it's like, do you acknowledge that we did these updates? Yeah, sure, sure. I just, like, what time is it? You know, I acknowledge. Um, or some agreement that pops up in order for you to proceed to the next thing, and there's 10 pages of legal jargon. Do you acknowledge that you got this? Yeah, sure, I acknowledge. Um, that, that's what I think of when I hear the word acknowledge, just a, noting that it's there. And I've actually heard this passage preached before where it's like, hey, you need to... Um, if you want to, in all of your ways, acknowledge him, you need to pray before you do anything. And I think that's a good principle. I think that's great. But I don't think that that's what is being communicated by the sage, by, by Solomon here, when he imparts this wisdom. I think he's getting at more. I think what this verse is calling for is knowing God and obeying God at every step of the way. Not a quick acknowledgement that he's there. Um, my office overlooks an area of Aliso Creek Road. I'm right there in the CBI building across the street, and I see this stretch of Aliso Creek Road, and it's a stretch where people get pulled over a lot. Um, <laughs> on my, maybe you know what I'm talking about. Um, on my drive into work, often I drive past a motorcycle police officer who's there on the right side behind some bushes clocking with the radar gun, right? So I drive by him, and then I pull into work, and often... That same day, I see people getting pulled over right outside of my office. And so if we were to go down to the light a couple hundred yards before this stretch where people speed and text message or do whatever they do, and if we were to tell people at the stoplight, hey, as you proceed, make sure you acknowledge the police officer on your right. What I'm intending to communicate there is not just note that he's there as you fly by at 100 miles an hour, like, hey. Um, what I'm intending to communicate to help you out is you should acknowledge him in the sense that you adjust your behavior 
you adjust your speed, you set down your phone, you check to make sure you're lining up with all the rules that he happens to be enforcing. So you acknowledge him in the sense that you alter your behavior to line up with what he's checking for. So acknowledge works here if we understand it that way, but not as like, check the box, I get that he's there. You need to acknowledge God in all of your ways in the sense that you alter your behavior, you adjust your course of action to line up with what God is enforcing, the rules that he's laid out. That's why I put obey God exhaustively as the point. Other translations of the Bible translate this verse a couple different ways. The NIV says, submit to him in all of your ways. And I think that's a, that communicates it a little bit differently. Submit to him in all of your ways. The New Living Translation says, seek his will in all of your ways. And the Christian Standard Bible says, know him in all of your ways. And so these are just a couple different ways to try to communicate the sense of what's here. But I believe it's obedience not, that comes out of a relationship with God. Now, my example of acknowledging the police officer breaks down at at least two points. Number one, the police officer is enforcing the laws. He did not write the laws. And I think that's one big difference. God not only enforces the law, but he actually is the author of Scripture. So he wrote this, and he's enforcing it, and he's watching. Second way that the illustration breaks down is that this police officer is monitoring one stretch of one road in one city, in one country, and in the world. Whereas, you know, God is omnipresent, and he's everywhere, and he's all the time, and he sees everything that happens, not just one stretch of the road. You could slow down, appease the police officer, and then proceed speeding, and maybe not get a ticket. Not so with God. You need to acknowledge him in all of your ways, which is exhaustive. And in order to do this, I think you have to be willing to give up control of your life. Most people here are probably okay obeying God to a point. But once we approach a line that crosses out of our comfort zone, obeying God becomes a lot more difficult. You have to be willing to let God's word tell you what to do in all of your business. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, I want to show you an example of this. Acts chapter 9. If you've been with us on the weekends, Pastor Mike has been preaching through the book of Acts. And not too long ago, we were here in chapter 9 looking at the conversion of Saul. Saul, you'll remember, was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was actively persecuting and arresting Christians. And God approaches a certain Christian named Ananias and tells him to go and talk to Saul. That's where we pick it up in verse 10. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, 
how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. And so if we just stop right there, we see that Ananias is aware of this guy named Saul, aware of what he's capable of doing, and he's heard about it, testified by a a number of other people. So God says, hey, I want you to go and talk to Saul. And his first reaction is, are you sure? You want me to go and talk to Saul? You know what he's capable of doing? And look what the passage says. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And then in verse 17, Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he obeyed. But after he initially paused and questioned what God had asked him to do, And I think, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing Ananias was probably just fine to obey God without the question as long as the the call to action was within his comfort zone. There were probably other things that he read in, in the scriptures or that God had called him to do that he was like, okay, no questions asked, I'll go and do it. But here, a question was asked, Lord, are you sure you want me to do this? This is outside of my comfort zone. And actually, we can, we can bring in some of the other concepts from Proverbs chapter 3. Is Ananias, is he going to trust God in the situation? Do, do I trust you? Am I going to lean on my own understanding? Because in this situation, my understanding is bad guy, lots of power, why, persecuting people like me. It doesn't make sense for me to go and talk to this person. I'll go and talk to someone else. But Saul? If I lean on my own understanding, not going to do it. doesn't make sense. Stay in the safety of my home. Don't go out. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. So here was an opportunity Ananias was faced with. Do I acknowledge God in the situation? Do I alter my course of action to line up with what he wants me to do? Do I trust him enough to do so? Or am I going to lean on my own understanding? And so Ananias, after his initial question, he goes and he does it. He's faithful, obedient to the Lord, though it was outside of his comfort zone. And I think that you have to be ready and willing to do the same. There's, maybe you're at a point right now in life or you've just recently been there where God has asked you to step beyond your comfort zone. If you're not there right now, it's, it's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when in the Christian life. When is my next thing where I need to do something that I'm uncomfortable with? And maybe my first reaction is, I don't understand, doesn't make sense, or I don't, that's not for me. Someone else is more qualified than me to do that. And I think you need to decide now, be resolved in your mind now, that when you get there, when God puts that next uh, responsibility on your plate, that you're ready to take the step of obedience because you trust God, because you're willing to follow him in all of your ways, that you're going to do it. The result, back in Proverbs chapter 3, is that he will make your paths straight. That sounds nice. He'll make your paths straight. That's good. What exactly does that mean? I I don't think it's a, a prophetic promise that 
all of your ways are instantly going to be, you know, seamless and perfect and no potholes and no bumps along the way, that everything is going to be easy from here on out. But I do think it means that God is going to clear your path. He's going to make clear where you ought to go and what you ought to do, and he's going to help you to get there. Proverbs, or uh, Psalm chapter 73, verse 24 says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Being guided by the Lord, going where he wants you to go. A path that gets you successfully where you're going. I do think, while it's not a promise that in every case, everything's going to be easy and clear. I do think there is a sense in which this proverb is saying, if, if, if you trust in the Lord and if you don't lean on your understanding and if you acknowledge Him, then it's going to be good for you. It's going to be a good thing. And in the long run, uh, your paths are going to be straight. In fact, this whole section, verses 1 through 12, contains this sort of positive incentive to obey God. Look at verse 1. It says, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. What happens as a result? Length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. It will be a good thing for you if you listen to my teaching. It will go well for you if you listen to my teaching. And in fact, in all of the even verses, you have such an incentive. Verse 2, again in verse 4. You will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Verse 6, he will make your path straight. Verse 8, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Verse 10, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. What we have here in this section of the Proverbs is general wisdom that says if you do things the way God tells you to do them and you follow and you fear the Lord, and that's generally going to be good for you. Your paths are going to be straight. You're going to have peace. And that's the right thing to do. And the opposite is also true. If you reject the Bible, if you reject God's word, and if you make a pattern of lying and cheating and stealing and killing, then it's not going to go well for you. And that's the general wisdom of the Proverbs. Again, not prophetic promises that are true every, every time, but the, the general wisdom of this book. If you're the kind of person who's honest and hardworking, you find success. And if you're the kind of person who cheats and steals and lies in the long run, you don't. You're the kind of person who ends up in jail. You end up uh, bankrupt. You end up with broken relationships. You end up dead. Uh, the, the Proverbs suggest this kind of thing. In fact, in chapter 7, you have the guy who follows after the adulterous woman, and it says um, he follows her as an ox to the slaughter, as a stag caught fast till the arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know it will cost him his life. It does not go well for you if you reject the Bible. Again, in chapter um, 15, verse 6, here's both positive and negative. It says, In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. So, we have this positive incentive to do things God's way, to follow the principles that are laid out for us in texts like this one. And so what we see here in Proverbs chapter 3 is that trust and obedience really go together. Trust God and, and obey God. And the next verse goes with them as well. It says, fear God and turn away from evil. And this is the third um, principle for this passage, if we look 
Um, verse 5, trust him with all your heart. Verse 6, acknowledge him in all of your ways. And then verse 7, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. I thought it was important to include this passage because often we read verses 5 and 6 and stop. And verse 7 is very much attached in uh, conceptually and, and grammatically as well. So we need to look at verse 7 and consider fearing God as a third and final principle for navigating life in a complex world. Point number three, fear God more. Fear God more. And it is striking that following the command to trust, you have a command to fear. Because in our minds, those things are kind of opposite. In the the American vernacular, trusting someone and fearing that same person are kind of opposite ideas. But in the Bible, these ideas go together. If you trust God, you need to fear him as well. What does it mean to fear God? Why don't you try to think of a definition in your own mind right now? How would you define fear of God? Fear the Lord. What does that mean? I don't know what kinds of words are coming into your mind when you try to define this concept, but perhaps respect is one of those words. Respect, I need to respect God. That's what it means to fear Him. I think that's a good word, and I think that's one slice of the bigger pie of fearing God because fear of God in the Proverbs is a robust term. There's a lot of pieces to it. It's a major thing in the book of Proverbs. I think it also includes concepts of respect, as I said, reverence, awe, submission, love, admiration, a recognition of who God is and what he can do. I was at a conference last week in Texas, and there was a bunch of academic bigwigs at this conference, and I was there to connect with some of them and talk about Compass Bible Institute. And I went and listened to a bunch of the lectures and they were reading papers and talking about, you know, current research findings and things like that. And so I sat through hours and hours of these kinds of lectures. And, um, but there was one that I missed. And it turns out that when I was registering months ago, I opted to not register for the banquet. I was like, I don't need to go to the banquet. It's like an extra add-on, one of the nights, special fancy dinner thing. I don't need to go to that. Well, once I got there, I found out that Dr. Albert Moeller was uh, speaking after the banquet, and the only way to listen to him was to have a seat at the banquet. And I'm like, oh, man, I missed, I missed this opportunity to connect with Dr. Moeller or listen to Dr. Moeller. And Earlier that day, I think, that exact day, he had gone to lunch with Pastor Mike, and we had talked to him, and I think he was kind of expecting us to be there. I don't know. But um, I didn't know my mistake. And so I didn't make it to the banquet, though I did listen to a bunch of other stuff. And so instead of going to the banquet that night, I went to the hot tub at the hotel. (laughs) And so I was at the hot tub, and just relaxing, letting all those papers sink in, you know. And... When we got out, we started walking back to our hotel. It's a nice hotel, you know. And I think the hot tub is on the third floor. So when we enter back inside, we hear like rumbling, all these voices, all these guys talking. Turns out the banquet had just gotten released. And it was on floor two. We were on floor three. 
And we all had to go up to get back to our rooms, all the guys in the banquet, and then us on uh, level three, dripping short, dri- dripping swim trunks, towel draped over the shoulder. Um, <laughs> and so I remember talking to the guys. We, we, we were all realizing, like, all right, worst case scenario right now. So we push the elevator button, and the doors open, and there stands Dr. Albert Moeller. <laughs> And so I'm like, oh, no. And um, we push the button. And there's legitimate fear in my heart. (laughs) I was genuinely fearful at that point. And um, the doors open. And sure enough, a lot of guys wearing nice, fancy clothes were there. Dr. Muller was not one of them. Thank the Lord. But um, (laughs) we did have an awkward ride up to floor eight or nine in our dripping trunks. Um, but I share that story because there is a sense of fear, and legitimate fear, healthy fear, I think, because uh, there's a sense in which I have this kind of fear toward Albert Muller. He's come here and spoke before. He's one of the big, big wigs of this conference, and, um, and I've learned a lot from him. I respect him. So there's our word respect. I have an appreciation for him, and I value him, and, and all of these things. I had met him earlier that day. He had lunch with Pastor Mike, and um, <laughs> he happens to be the president of the school that had awarded me a degree, and he could probably revoke that degree with a single tweet. <laughs> he could probably send a little text message that would wreak havoc on uh, me. And um, so I, I know him, I love him, and I also know what he's capable of doing. And so I think it's all of those factors that kind of come together to um, create this idea of fear of someone, or in this case, here in our proverb, fear of God. You love him, you know him, you respect him, but you know what he's capable of doing, much more than revoking a degree, much more than um, causing you to be fired from your job, right? God can do anything, and he's powerful to do whatever he wants. So we need to fear God, which involves a recognition of who he is and what he can do. And the way our passage describes it is that um, it says, fear God and turn away from evil. So fearing God, according to Proverbs chapter 3, involves turning away from evil. In fact, turning to evil must mean turning away from fearing God. You fail to fear God in that moment when you turn to evil. So turning away from evil involves turning to the fear of the Lord. These are inseparable, and they go together. So the passage says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear God, fear the Lord, turn away from evil. And if you're not careful, you can begin to think of yourself as very wise and to have life figured out and to be a self-appointed expert and to think you know better than everyone else. Ultimately, maybe to think you know better than God in one situation or another. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 12, it says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. You need to resist the temptation to be wise in your own eyes by fearing God. 
and fear of God is exactly where wisdom begins. So if you're wise in your own eyes, you are not wise because you're in a proud, haughty position away from God. Wisdom actually comes from humbling yourself and fearing God. That Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the way to wisdom is not by thinking yourself to be wise, but by fearing God, humbling yourself, submitting to Him, and learning from Him. And the result in our passage is healing to your entire person. Here, healing to your entire body. Look at it, verse, uh, verse 8. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is kind of an all-encompassing flesh and bones healing. So it will repair what's broken and nourish what is famished. And so here in this section, there's actually an instance that connects your spiritual life and the choices that you make to um, your physical body. One of the factors in your physical health is your choices, your, your decisions, your, uh, spirit, your heart, your spirit. It's not the only factor on your physical body, but it's one of the factors, and it's one that David knew all too well, as you, as you recall in Psalm 32, when he laments his sin with Bathsheba, and he, he remained quiet about his sin, he says in Psalm 32, I, I, I remained quiet about my sin, and my bones wasted away. It was miserable. It was physically draining and, and unhealthy for me. And then when I repented, that changed. So there is a, a connection here between your spiritual life and your physical body. And as we talked about earlier, this is the book of Proverbs. This is not a prophetic, predictive prophecy book guaranteeing that every time you fear God, you'll get healthy but this is giving us general wisdom that suggests fearing God is good for you. It's good for your body. It's good for your soul. It's the right way to live. It's what God created you to do. So I've, uh, I've covered verse 8, which includes health. I have talked about verse 10, which includes wealth. Sounds a whole lot like uh, the health and wealth gospel, Pastor Mark. I'm not an advocate of the health and wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel that a lot of people uh, will, will preach that suggests if you uh, pray a certain prayer or if you say that you become a Christian, then your life, you'll have money, you'll be blessed financially, you'll be blessed physically, and if you just have enough faith, then you'll be healed or you'll have money. It's not what I'm saying. But I am just trying to read this proverb and say, look at what's here. There is a sense in which we ought to value these principles because, generally speaking, they're good for us. It's good to live this way. God created you to live this way. It's the right way to live. So, as you navigate this complex world, you should keep these simple um, timeless principles on your mind. At the Laguna Niguel uh, Botanical Gardens, past all of the twists and turns, the maze, up at the top, there's a labyrinth. 
And there's a little sign next to the labyrinth that says, this labyrinth, this is not a maze. This is very different than a maze. A labyrinth is not designed to trick you. It's designed to get you to walk and twist and turn and weave back and forth as you eventually make your way to the center and find a sense of fulfillment or, you know, allow that time to be time where you think and ponder and, and whatever. So I think that's actually a better picture of the way that the Christian life ought to be than the maze that's between you and the labyrinth because the labyrinth has a clearly defined path and the one at the Laguna Niguel Park is defined by different color pavers. There's light colored pavers everywhere and then the path is like dark pavers and so there's this little path and you follow it all the way around. It takes a couple minutes to get to the middle. It's clearly offset from the other pavers by its color and you know when you're on the path. And I think what we've discovered in, these pa- in this passage here with these three principles is um, somewhat of a boundary markers, principles that can help you to know that you're on the right path. Trusting God, obeying God, fearing God. These, stay within these boundaries as you navigate all the craziness that's out there in the world. And you'll have a sense that you're making progress in the right direction. You're doing what God wants you to do. You can take it to the bank that these are the actions that he wants you to have right now in our complex world. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for this book, the, the Bible. We're thankful, God, for um, the, the clarity of it. We're thankful for passages like this one that just contain simple, timeless truths for us. God, though they're simple, we know they are difficult. They're challenging for us to apply. And so I pray that by your spirit, you would help us to live this way, to, be, to live like Jesus in this sort of way, trusting you, obeying you, being faithful. God, help us. We look around us and there are many challenges. We acknowledge them. And so we just ask for your help to apply these things to make our way through this season of life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 